moment of time to again build the context for you. As I was pondering this, I thought about for just a moment one of the things that is so critical to our identity as believers. Now, whether or not we have put this label upon ourselves or the world has put this label upon us is that our identity, a part of our identity as believers is the fact that we assemble together in worship. If you think about that for a moment, I know the Bible says they were first called Christians at Antioch, but one of the things that the world takes notice of that you do on a regular basis is you attend a worship service or you participate in a worship service, that you congregate or you assemble with men and women of a like precious faith. That becomes something that helps uh, create your identity. And it becomes such a big part of who we are as believers. Many of us love the function of the church so much that we oftentimes... Um, we, we will develop our entire life around it. We will schedule around it. We'll make sure that we're here at the right time, right place. Or many of you, even when you go on vacation and things of that nature, you, you find a way, a place, a house of worship somewhere. It's, it's so rooted and ingrained within your spiritual DNA. But one of the things in the, in the context of biblical theology that you may find odd is that as important as this is to the church, and in who we are as believers, you really don't find a clear snapshot theologically of what these services ought to look like. So that we could, in essence, model to a certain degree what we do when we gather together. Have you thought about that in your own, you know, contemplations and reasonings? That there's simply not a clear picture of what this should be. Now, we know and we're familiar with what the common template for traditional Protestant liturgy has become. It has evolved to this place. I cannot say that it's always been this way. I don't know what it was like when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg, Germany and started the Reformation. I don't know as the Protestant church evolved what all of those services look like. But it has evolved to the place where typically there's a welcoming by either pastor or leader. And then there's worship songs. And then sometimes there's a culmination prayer like we have at our church with Jojo or another minister might come up and, and, and urge you to pray and we might pray for you or pray with you at that time and typically there's an offering at some point in time in the service whether it be the passing of the plate or coming forward as we do here at First Assembly and then there's scripture reading. The scripture reading sometimes in some churches is separate from the preaching of the word of God. Sometimes it, as in our church it is synonymous with preaching of the word of God. Sometimes there's a separate reader for the preacher especially in the African-American community, in the African-American churches. And then there's typically preaching and teaching where one man stands before you in a lecture-type format and communicates to you a particular truth that he is studying and prepared in his heart to share with you, hoping and praying that you are listening and that when you're looking at your phone, you're actually looking at the Scriptures. Come on, somebody. God knows. And then it will culminate usually with an appeal in evangelical churches um, from Baptist all the way to Pentecostal, especially with some type of appeal, salvation at an altar call. And then certainly in Pentecostalism, it can then blossom from there. And that sounds like a familiar pattern that you're, does that, does that sound familiar to you? And th that's what it has evolved or developed into. And, but, but I pinned this question because I'm asking myself, I'm studying this for my own personal growth because I want our church to be who God's called us to be. And I ask, is that the biblical pattern? That may be what it's evolved into, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what it was designed to be. Right? And, but then there, that's another fair question. Or is there even a biblical pattern? 
Now, here's one thing that we know. So I'm going to put you in the context of corporate worship for a few moments. Now, you may say, now, Pastor Brown, I thought you were talking about the spontaneous work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, the spontaneous work of the Holy Spirit. But where? In the midst of the church, when the church assembles for corporate worship. One of the things that we do know about when the church comes together, and Paul alluded to this in 1 Corinthians 11 about the church coming together. But he wrote in chapter 12, but certainly in chapter 14, he concluded that 14th chapter with these words, let all things be done decently and in order. That's one thing that we all should be in agreement on is that whether or not we all are in agreement upon the actual arrangement of the service, but we trust that God is a God of order. He's a God of uh, the context of decency means in a seemly manner. That there should be, it shouldn't just, uh, now there's a difference between having spontaneity and erratic worship, right? Where there's no flow. God is a God of flow. Come on, somebody. He is. And so, in this context, he says, so let it be done decently. Let it have a seemly manner. And let there be a measure of order, arrangement. That actual word order in the original language, it actually can be applied to an army being arranged in a field. Battle array. You're familiar with that term biblically, the battle array, that there's some measure of order. So, what we know is, is that we are told that no matter how we structure our services, that we are to make maintain decency we're to have a seemly manner a flow and we're also uh, to maintain order but at the same time have you thought about this even though we are told to maintain decency and maintain order we are also instructed to not quench the spirit right and so we've got to find ourselves in that delicate balance and that right application of the word of god i believe here's my personal belief i believe that at some level in the context of corporate worship I just want to throw this in. It's not in the notes. It feels really good to be here preaching on a Sunday night. It just does. I just felt like I should say that. It feels so right. I'm so grateful for this privileged opportunity. My personal belief is that at some level in a corporate environment and corporate worship, at some time or some moment, there should allow for multiple people to exercise those graces that God has given you, come on, to minister one to the other, yet all things be done decently and in order. And I, I think there is an, a measure of praying and asking God how this should function. And one of the things that I've done is that, I, again, I'm trying to go back to the first century and get a snapshot of the church of that era. And I can't say that that was everything that was in the first century church was everything that should be patterned because that was the infant church. God expected the infant church to grow and to mature, right? But at the same time, if you study scripture, you will arrive at this conclusion. The first century church followed to a degree the pattern of the synagogue, the synagogue after which, and, and, and the pattern of the synagogue, let me even give you a, a, a well, I'll, I'll I'll make a decision with myself. Let's consider the pattern of the synagogue for a moment. Think for a moment of time, the first century church. Originally, it was about eight years before the gospel ever was taken to the Gentile community. So the first eight years of the infant church, everything was Jewish believers who had been brought up in the synagogue. 
And so much of their worship in their private settings, Acts 2 says that they met house to house oftentimes and that the new believers continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and the breaking of bread and of prayers. And, and so that group of men and women would have been trained in uh, the personal discipline of synagogue. And so then even when the gospel did penetrate into the Gentile communities, if you read the book of Acts, you'll find that the apostle Paul almost always started his evangelistic journey in whatever city he journeyed to inside a synagogue. So I think it's fair for us to say that the New Testament church that we read about, not only in the book of Acts, but in the epistles when the apostles are writing to give correction and instruction to the, both their character and how they function within a group setting drew a lot of their pattern from the pattern of the synagogue. Now, to do that, let me take a moment of time and I'll even, uh, I'll, I'll go into the history just briefly of the synagogue for just a moment because just in this personal context, I think sparks something within us of the virtue of why we're here tonight. The very first gathering in the synagogue, the word synagogue simply meant the assembling of God's people is most probably during the exile after the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar and the children of Israel were brought back to Babylon. While there in a foreign land with a pagan uh, leadership and with pagan culture all around them, the Jews knew in order to maintain their heritage and maintain their identity, they would have to assimilate together. They would have to come together in order to maintain their identity. And I tell you what, I think that that principle is a part of why we need to, uh, as the scripture says in Hebrews 10 and 25, not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We need to maintain who we are by iron sharpening iron. Come on, by drawing strength from one another and encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day of Christ approaching. So the Jewish people developed a, a, a system of coming together. Now, it would evolve when they did return into the land of Israel. It would eventually evolve to the erection of certain buildings that they would actually call a synagogue or assembly or a meeting house. And, and it wasn't just for worship. It was for actual school. The schools always used the Torah, so in essence always had a religious purpose. It did also function as special prayer services. And it was also for just special study times of small groups. People sat on three sides. It wasn't like we had the privilege of going inside in Nazareth, um, the, the, the town of Jesus as a boy, where they have erected a synagogue that would have looked similar to the one that he went into when he was, uh, you know, a young boy living there in Nazareth. And people would sit on three sides. It wouldn't be quite designed like it is here today where I'm pushing this direction. There would be people groups here, people groups here, and people oftentimes it was unbroken except for the exit out of the building. And it was from there that people sat on the floor at times, and some the, the more prominent people often were given a seat. And that's why Jesus and some of his teachings said, take the lower place. And when you come in and if they want to bring you up to a higher place, they'll bring you up. There was a small platform where the speaker or the readers would stand. There was often a small menorah, a seven-branched candlestick that would be adjacent to the platform. There was a seat for the reader of the Torah called Moses' seat or a seat of honor. The Torah was kept either off campus, so to speak, in a portable chest and brought to the synagogue, or most often it was kept in a permanent chest within the synagogue called the Ark. 
uh, outside was a mikvah for symbolic cleansing required for entrance into the synagogue. And there was a synagogue ruler to which, again, in the evolution of the New Testament church, a pastor would be akin to a synagogue ruler because he was responsible for maintaining the facility and arranging the services for each week on the Sabbath. Now, here's what's awesome about the synagogue, because this is one thing we're going to learn from tonight, is that though the synagogue ruler maintained the building and organized the prayer services, any adult member of the community could be a reader. Any adult member of the community, uh, not community of the village, but community of the synagogue could be a prayer leader. And, and even so, there's differing opinions amongst the theologians of what the role that women played and men played. And we'll sort that out at a later date and time, but we're just going to stick with any adult member at this particular time. And that could also then share or expound upon the scriptures, but only adult males could be called the elders. And the order of the Jewish community was this. There was a Sabbath meal on Friday. Friday night and then on Saturday morning they had the Sabbath or the synagogue service. The service began with a congregational quotation of the Shema which is a quotation of Deuteronomy the sixth chapter the fourth verse. It would say and congregationally it would be, it would be a response Hear O Israel the Lord thy God is one Lord. And from there they would go into the reading of Torah which is the law of Moses. As many as seven different passages could be chosen in a singular service. Always with a different reader who would come to the podium and take the scroll and read from that particular passage. And then upon the completion of the reading of the Torah they would read from the prophets. When the time of the prophets, the reading of the prophets was concluded, there would be a sermon. This may surprise you. It often differs from our our sermons in Christianity was often very short. I know some of you are now feel like, I like that, Pastor Brown. Let's go that direction. And, um, but oftentimes, following the sermon, there could be debate, dialogue about what the, either the text that was read or the sermon that was shared, especially if it was controversial, especially if the speaker shared something that was unfamiliar to the listeners. Thus, when you see in the book of Acts, when Paul would go into a Gentile or go into a Gentile community where there was a Jewish synagogue, here, let me read you a passage of Scripture uh, just very quickly that will convey that point. Acts 13, 15. It says this, after the reading of the law and of the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them Paul and Barnabas and said, you men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So we had the order of the synagogue, but we had the leaders of the synagogue recognize that these two Jewish brothers who were not from that, from that community were new there for that day, but perhaps God had given them a word. Maybe they had something to share. And so they were given the opportunity to speak. And then once again, the sermon and the debate and the dialogue concluded, there would be a benediction and there could be a priestly blessing, the Aaronic priestly blessing of number six where the priest would bless the people, but that no one could actually pronounce that blessing over the people but a priest. And so it's from that context for just a moment of time. And the reason why I want to mention this is the New Testament church evolved from that structure. Now, I know you're saying, Pastor, I thought you was going to be preaching about the Holy Ghost tonight. If you'll stay with me for just a moment of time. So as we begin to read epistles where Paul then begins to give instruction to the churches that are forming worship services and there are good things happening, but then there's sometimes there's some not so good things happening. 
He reproved the Corinthians by saying, I don't commend you because when you come together, it's for the worse, not for the better. That's a tough place to be in church, right? When you come together, no one's better, no one's strengthened, no one is edified in that sense, and there's greater confusion. And so Paul gives instruction. So just a moment of time, listen to this. As he gave instruction to the Corinthians, he especially in 1 Corinthians 14 identified the misuse of tongues and he contrasted tongues and prophesying. Do you remember that? He contrasted tongues and prophesying because he said in the fifth verse of the 14th chapter, he said that if you prophesy, you are greater than he that speaks with tongues unless you speak with tongues and interpret that the church may be edified because Paul said that he would rather in the church speak just a few words in a known language than 10,000 words in an unknown language that didn't edify the body. So he did give superiority to prophesying over tongues unless tongues and was accompanied by interpretation. And the reason why I wanted to draw your attention to the fact that Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 kept referring back to prophesying is because at the core, prophesying is a spontaneous work of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the assembly. It's a spontaneous work. Now, Paul said this, I'm not going to have them bring that text up, but he said, if the whole church be come together and every one of you speak in tongues, he said, and there comes in one who is unlearned, he will say that you are mad. He said, but if an unlearned man comes in your assembly and all are prophesying, prophetical unctions are gifts, are functioning within the live stream of the church, he will then fall down on his face and say, God is in you of a truth because through your prophetical unctions, you have revealed the inner things of his heart. You've exposed because the gifts of the Spirit did function and flow within the prophetical unction, and you must have spoke something that struck a chord, and he cried out and said, God is in you of a truth, and he fell prostrate before God. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning that just very quickly is, is that when the church comes together and the church assembles together, there should be order. Things should be done decently and with seam and with flow and with structure. But in the midst of the structure, in the midst of the seam, God still allows for a spontaneous response to the work of the Spirit of God that should be agitated. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? When we come together. That's why he would write in 1 Corinthians 14 and 26, he said, when you come together, every one of you has a psalm, has a hymn, has a doctrine, has a revelation, has a prophecy. He said, let everything be done decent. Everybody can share in edifying the body of Christ. My vision for these Sunday night church services is not for us to be here and me or whoever else is on the platform lecturing you, preaching entirely just to you. It's a sermon that goes forth, you grasp it, you hear it, and you go out and you later process it. No, it is to stir up and to agitate the gifts of God that are in the heart and the lives of each one of God's children so that when the body comes together, the body is then ministering to the body. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? And then all the gifts of God are in function in our midst and everybody is edified and built up by the power of the Holy Spirit who's working in our midst. And so with order, there is still opportunity for spontaneity, even in the context of prophesying. 
If you were to read on your own, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 29 through 31, the apostle said, when one brother, he said, let prophecy be akin to um, speaking in tongues, let it be by one or two or three, but let it be in order. And he said, and if in the midst of someone prophesying, something gets revealed to someone else, then someone ought to have the liberty in that context to be able to say, brother, I got a word. Wouldn't it be exciting if our church family became a fellowship where the work of the Holy Spirit found liberty in our hearts and in our lives and more than just a few chosen people to sit on a platform, but that all of God's children, come on, came to God's house and said, I didn't just come to give, or I didn't just come to get, excuse me, but I came to give. I did come to receive. I need what you've got. But I also, you need what I've got. And that's why we've got to be aware of the giftings of God that he's placed within us and sharpen them for the edification of his body. And when I was contemplating, and I'll get ready to close in just a moment, but let me say this. When I was contemplating the spontaneous work of God's Holy Spirit in the midst of the church, my mind traced back into the biblical narrative to see how the God of all order, the God of all arrangement, the God of such detail, that that same God will, would also just move move just spontaneous in the midst of his people when you think for just a moment of time even at the time of the dedication of the first tabernacle if you were to read the careful detail that moses gives to the arrangement of the tabernacle in all of the instruments in the 40th chapter the last chapter of the book of exodus as moses is defining boards and pillars and basins and bowls and snuffers and with altar and with uh, wood and with veil and with coverings and tapestries and with priests and with Levites and all of this order in the middle of that getting everything in its right place its proper order then the Bible says and suddenly the glory of God came in the spirit of God worked in harmony with the order but God spontaneously decided to show up and reveal his presence to the children of Israel and I'll tell you what that's what the church needs Come on, we need God in his sovereign grace to just spontaneously reveal himself among us. And I was thinking just for a moment, just to trace this for just a moment, and then I'll conclude. When you think about the spontaneous work of the Holy Spirit, we can, to a degree, create the atmosphere, but we can't conjure the work of the Spirit of God up. We just have to wait on him, stir up his giftings, and and when he's present, we recognize it. And when things get stirred up, I'm telling you, things can really begin to change. Come on, somebody. When I was thinking about this spontaneous work of the Holy Spirit, my mind went back for a moment of time, even in the Old Testament, with Saul, the king of Israel, when even he was still struggling with his jealousy for David. And he had already started to pursue after David because of David's success. He went down to a certain place. He sent, matter of fact, messengers to look for David. And they, in doing so, they crossed the path of a group of prophets that had been up on the hill prophesying. And when the messengers of Saul 
got in the presence of those prophets who were prophesying, they too began to spontaneously prophesy as the Spirit of God moved amongst them. Saul thought that odd, and he sent another group of messengers. And the Bible says that they too, when they got amongst the prophets, began to prophesy. Saul thought that to be odd. He said, I'm going to go myself. And so the king of Israel goes to the very hill where the prophets are gathered to prophesy. And when he got in the midst of them, the Spirit of God came and, and suddenly and spontaneously moved from off of them and led on Saul. And Saul fell down at their feet and began to prophesy. I just believe that a spontaneous work of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the church will wash away all the dry crust of religion and ritual. Come on, somebody, and allow the Spirit of God to have liberty and to bring life change to the lives of the individuals that are gathered. So I'm encouraging you to be conscious of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and be ready to respond. Let me say this. There is a difference between a prepared word and a spontaneous word of the Spirit. Both can have unction at their base. I can pray. I can study. I can say, God, give me a word that I'm going to preach two weeks from now and the Spirit of God can move upon my heart and I can develop a word that I can then teach or preach. But I have learned in my Christian experience that oftentimes the most effectual messages, the most effectual words, the most effectual time that I've ever heard the voice of God and, can, and, and felt the presence of God revealed through His Holy Word was when I did not have a prepared word and the Spirit of God just said, I want to bubble this up out of you. It's inside of you and I want to bubble it up right now to edify the body of believers. So this spontaneous work of the Holy Spirit will happen when you as a, as a fellowship and us as a fellowship recognize that you've been given gifts intended by God to minister one to the other. Peter said these words to you, as every man has received the gift of God, even so minister the same one to the other. Now you and I understand that we've been given these graces and the Spirit moves upon us, and we therefore need to minister one another. I know we don't need to lay hands on people suddenly, but we should be willing to respond to the Spirit's promptings and minister these graces to each other. That's the vision that I have for the Sunday night services. I have the vision of the service being that God, by His Spirit, may prompt you in the midst of a worship service at some component to go from over there and to go over here and prophesy a word to somebody. Come on, somebody. Or that God would move somebody over here that has the gift of healing in their life and the Lord lays a person who's fighting a sickness in our midst that you then go to that person and you release that gift of God that God's placed in your life. Come on, church family. Would y'all go with me here to culminate this time of teaching and preaching? Because I believe in the midst of order, in the midst of exhortation, in the midst of songs, in the midst of prayer, in the midst of preaching and teaching and praying for one another, the gifts of God that God's placed inside of you can spontaneously begin to rise up and if you will respond to that work of the Holy Spirit you will then minister that gift to one another and we will grow the health of this church unlike any other way possible. Amen. I'm going to ask Shane and the worship team to come back to the platform. The Spirit of God can move upon you to minister your gift to one or to all.